This podcast features explicit language and spoilers. Welcome to Better Late Than Never, a movie podcast where I invite a friend to watch a blockbuster, cult favorite, or otherwise culturally significant film that they've never seen before. After we watch the movie, my guest will decide if it was better late, that they've been missing out by not having seen the film, or never. The movie just didn't live up to the hype for them. My name is Dave, and I'm your host. Today, I am joined by my friend Drew, and we're going to be watching a movie he's never seen before. Hellraiser. From 1987. Drew, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Dave. Great to be here. <laughs> welcome. So, Drew, Hellraiser. What's your history with the movie Hellraiser? So, uh, Hellraiser, interesting one that I haven't seen. Uh, not a whole lot of history with this film, but I am very aware of it. Um, I used to go into the video store to rent videos back when Blockbuster was a thing. And uh, mm -hmm. I, I have a vivid recollection of always noticing the Hellraiser uh, kind of movie cover box uh, the sitting VHS there. Tape. The VHS tape. Um, with the, the um, main character, the pinhead, um, prominently featured on it. So that's kind of a, an ingrained image, if you will. Yeah, it had a very striking box. Yes. Yeah. Pinhead, and he's like, you know, kind of very large on the cover, holding out the... Well, not the thing. Yeah, and there's, you know, f kind of a fire and hell in the background, you know. Sure, very cause, iconic. Because he's raising it. Because he's raising hell. Yeah. 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 Well illustrated. All right. So, yeah, I, I remember always seeing it at, uh, at Video Smith and at Blockbuster, too. Uh, do you know anything about the movie? Do you know what happens? Uh, so I can't really say that I know the plot that well. Um, you know, it... I have some assumptions about what happens, but no, I, me. I don't. I'm, well, so you know, it's it seems to me like uh, like the Hellraiser series feels like a kind of knockoff or response to the Freddy Krueger Nightmare on Elm sure. Street. Uh, All right. Well, before we before we go further, how how familiar are you with that whole genre, the kind of '80s slasher supernatural thriller? kind of uh you know the slasher movie uh i know it pretty well you know um i have seen a number of the nightmare on elm street films a number of the friday the 13th films halloween uh halloween i've seen a few of um you know in my mind in my mind michael myers from halloween is uh less iconic than jason from friday the 13th and i have kind of a similar it's like a Michael Myers is to uh, Jason what the pinhead kind of is to He's Freddy. the weak sister. The weak sister. The kind of like Brand X knockoff. 
I don't know if, if everyone will. would agree with you on that. I mean, Michael Myers came before a lot of the other ones, you know. Oh. Ha- Halloween is the one that kicked off a lot of that genre. I So now I'm showing my true colors and not really, I, you know, I didn't know that. Well, I mean, it doesn't matter, though. You know, it's about your impression. Sure. You know? I, think, I, I think there would also be a fair contingent of people who would say that Jason is more iconic than Michael Myers. Mm. You know. I mean, in terms of the white mask-wearing slasher killers. Yeah. Yeah. There's also, what, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That's a pretty... Leatherface. Yeah, Leatherface is a pretty big uh, character, right? Yeah, he's got a franchise, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, you know, for me, Hellraiser was always, as you said, one of those movies that was in the club, but not maybe not a founding member, you know? Like, if he was in the Justice League, Hellraiser is more Green Arrow than Superman. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. You know, one of the one of the deep bench characters as opposed to right. And your has starters. its fans. Yeah. You know, a lot of people like him. And maybe, you know, if he gets a gritty reboot on the CW, more people will start enjoying Hellraiser. But uh, it's an Arrow reference, just oh, for yeah. clarity's sake. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... Um, you know, I came to this late, too. I never saw Hellraiser when I was a kid. I watched it, I think, for the first time in college. You know, I caught up to it late. Do you know uh, who is responsible for coming up with the idea? I'm not. Well, fitting know. fitting with your description, uh, the Hellraiser is a Clive Barker uh, concept. Right, and what else did uh, did Clive Barker create? I know that name. Well, he's, he's a horror writer, and... In the way you described Hellraiser being or Pinhead being kind of the weak sister to Freddy Krueger, yeah, Clive Barker is kind of like that to Stephen King. Oh, I see. You know, he's also an insanely successful horror writer, but he never quite achieved the same heights. You'll find a lot of Clive Barker in an airport bookstore. Ah, uh, you know yes. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And so, to answer your question, what else has Clive Barker come up with? I don't know. <laughs> I just know that he's a big horror writer and he came up with Hellraiser, but I couldn't name anything else he's done off the top of my head. Interesting. Yeah. All right, but to bring it back onto the movie itself, so you know you know, there's someone named Pinhead in the movie. Yes. What does Pinhead do? Yeah, so here we get into predictions, right? Um, or, I mean, you know there is a character commonly referred to as Pinhead. Yeah. I, I should say. Because, not to be a spoiler, but at least in the very first movie... Uh, or in the first movie script, Pinhead is not his name. Ah, I see. Well, I, I'm familiar with the character that I've seen on the box mm-hmm. um, being referred to as Pinhead in, in pop culture. Sure. I so mean, I'm yeah, sure that's, that that's what he's called. at some point. That's um, what called. But, you know, my my impression is that Pinhead is the one who it does the raising of the hell mm. in the in the in the series. So And what I do you think that entails? I'm not really sure, to be <laughs> to be fully honest. But if I were to, to guess, I mean, you know, it, it's uh, he's somehow a supernatural figure that that is found that finds himself in the natural world and and somehow uh, it's like the equivalent of opening a portal from hell where mm-hmm. where uh, fire and brimstone suddenly appear. Um, perhaps there are some creatures and monsters that are summoned as part of this. This is my impression of what he may be doing in the, in the film. Right. Maybe some torturous things. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, uh, how, do you, how do you think there's a portal that'll be open? I suppose now we're starting to get into uh, what 
I'm going to try and keep consistent throughout all these, which is predictions Yes. before we uh, watch the movie. So you think Pinhead is going to raise some hell. Yes. And you think he's going to come to Earth through a portal. Uh, mm, of sorts. Portal you know, of not sorts. like a round portal, but some, some manner of, of... Do you think he'll be supernatural? Yes. Okay. Um, so, and you think there'll be a portal of sorts? Yes. There's going to be some manner of him crossing over from the hell dimension into the normal world and, and finding a way to bring hell into the normal world somehow. Mm -hmm. So the portal could be a round portal, but I'm thinking it's probably not. Well, I, I don't know. (laughs) How do you think the portal is opened? Um... Some kind of a curse, some kind of a, uh, um, you know, there may be normal people who somehow uh, unlock this curse that that uh, summons Pinhead or, or spurs this all, this hell-raising activity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Normal people. Yeah, there's always those normal people. Yeah. You gotta kill someone. That's right, yeah. Now, um... Has anyone... Do you know anyone who's, like, into this movie? No. Yeah, me too. I'm... You know, I chose this one because it is sort of a cult favorite. I don't personally know anyone who's super into it, but yeah. it is... You know, the two of us are pretty into those fun 80s slashers films. I love Freddy. I love Jason. I like I like Michael Myers. Texas yes. Chainsaw Massacre is a classic, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. Hellraiser was always just kind of out there. Like, as it was, you know, as we said, it was, I don't want to call it an also-ran, but... Um, but you just did. <laughs> but I did, yeah. So take that, Hellraiser. Yeah. Um, I, I don't expect to, to it to wow me. I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to go into this and admit the bar feels low. It, it feels like I don't expect to be wowed. I, I feel like it's going to be campy and, you know, kind of a... A B movie, basically. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So, any more specific predictions? Uh, that's really all I got. Okay. All right. Did you did you get monsters in there? Oh did no! Other I'll, monsters, I'll other oh, the... supernatural figures besides this pinhead character. Yeah. Okay, I got that down. And uh, and you're expecting. Not great things. <laughs> Not great things. Some torture, some... Oh, you mean in terms of the, the overall in terms of enjoyment of, of the entertainment? I mean, I expect to be do, doing more laughing at the film than, like, you know, feeling the horror that I was meant to feel from mm. Clyde Barker. Right. You don't expect it's going to be very scary. Uh, right. I don't I don't expect to be scared. Mm. Okay. I imagine it was designed to be scary, but oh sure, you know, it's it's one of these things where you know that tends to be true for a lot of this genre, right? Now that we're in you know 2018, we go back and and check out anything that was made in the 80s around this, and there's some like laughing around, like you know now we wouldn't be able to suspend our disbelief around the way that the cinematography was done at that time right sure and i mean you know uh, part of it though would have to be that there are tropes that have developed that we become so used to that uh they don't scare us anymore right you know like seeing a monster vision with the that doesn't that's not really scary to me anymore no it's it's kind of yeah that you've seen it done and redone and 
parodied and all of this. Right, and you know, after you watched like Saw Five, you know, seeing the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's still shocking, and I mean the the realism of Texas Chainsaw Massacre still keeps it fresh and terrifying, but it probably doesn't have the same kind of oomph behind it for a jaded modern viewer that, you know, your 70s uh, housewife watching it for the first time would have gotten. I don't yes. know why I said housewife. But... I mean, the, you know, it's it was a for example, right? I right. mean, anyone from that time. It's basically but, uh, an exemplar of more conservative time. On a side note, you know don't what I have me. to see? What? I have to see Saw. <laughs> oh, did you see Saw? I haven't seen Saw. Oh, did you see Saw 2? I didn't see Saw 2. I saw Saw 2. Did you see Saw 2? I saw Saw 2 too. <laughs> Sorry, right. everyone. We've, we've, we've rehearsed that bit before, as you can tell. Yeah, it came off great. Well, with that piece of ridiculousness, I think we should sit down and watch this thing. I agree. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Well, we'll be back after we've witnessed, for my second time and Drew's first time, the movie Hellraiser. Here we go. I have seen the future of horror. His name is Clive Barker. Yeah, just wow. I mean, was it what you expected? My goodness. Um, in some ways, yes, but in many ways, no. Yeah, and I have to say, even having seen it before, my memory of it was not as strong as I thought. Uh, we'll get into that, though. First, though, I think it behooves me to issue a correction. I was very wrong in part one of this podcast. The person who I was thinking of when describing uh, Clive Barker was, in fact, Dean Koontz. Dean Koontz is the B-level Stephen King who's in all the airport uh, bookstores. I will say Clive Barker is also a writer, but he, I think, would be known to you more for also being the director of Candyman. Oh, yes, and I have seen Candyman. Right, yes, yeah. so he is a horror maestro of sorts, an auteur, and uh, evidently really likes hooks. Yeah, as was his, evident in Hellraiser. His movies feature a lot of hooks. Hmm. But um, I apologize. Uh, 
Clive Barker is not Dean Koontz. <laughs> so um, I'm going to do this a little bit different from the way I've done uh, earlier uh, podcasts, of which there aren't many yet, but there are a couple. I'm going to try and be a little bit more organized. I have been doing this loosey-goosey as a conversation, but this time we'll see, uh, we'll see how a little bit more structure goes. So I'm going to give you a little bit of background that uh, I just kind of briefly got off the old Wikipedia, Wikipedia during the film. So this movie, Hellraiser, from 1987, is based on the Clive Barker short story, The Hellbound Heart. When they were making the film, the original working title was Sadomasochists from Beyond the Grave. I think that's a pretty awesome title. I don't know how successful a movie would have been with it. That's like a 1950s title, you know? warrior women from planet jupiter you know like <laughs> sadomasochists from beyond the grave like it is a great great title though uh this was clive barker's first film directing and uh he was still learning when he made the prod made the movie he said about uh about making the movie the cast treated my ineptitudes kindly and the crew were no less forgiving which is nice but that when he started, he didn't know the difference between a 10 millimeter lens and a 35 millimeter lens. If you'd shown me a plate of spaghetti and said that was a lens, I might have believed you. I actually think, yes, there are a lot of flaws with the movie, but for a first time out, pretty good, I think. Mm -hmm. You know, it was yeah. effective, scary at parts, even now. And creative. I think there were a bunch of parts of this movie where the directing was pretty creative. I have to agree. Uh, I found myself pleasantly surprised and pretty impressed with a lot of the the actual film work, the cinematography. It Some was very atmospheric, right? Yes, and like especially the opening sequence and some of the the parts with animation. Uh, it. It was very sophisticated. Like some yeah. of the sequences reminded me of a, an animator, a Czech animator named Jan Schwenkmeyer. Tell me more. Uh, well, he does kind of like, and he's from like the 50s and, and 60s, like a very early animator. And his uh, animation was very graphic, but he made great use of sound as mm, well with totally. it. And some of those early, um, he, he does a version of Faust. He has a film mm. that's Faust. And it, the... The sound and animation combination, the very vivid sounds, speaking of which, the very vivid sounds with the the animation, really, um, there. I mean, this film echoed that kind of atmosphere. Yes, I will say, you know, we were talking throughout the movie about how a lot of the film is kind of gross, and it's sort of got like this wet quality, but uh, that's reflected in the sound design, too, where yes. like a lot of the motion, there's kind of like this, this, this icky, like, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, that's it was, it was effective at what it was trying to do. I agree. Um, I was thinking, you know, my initial thought, and I think it's a pretty obvious one for a point of comparison, would be David Cronenberg, just the body horror kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Because, I, you know, the, the special effects, especially for when it was made, the late 80s, not half bad. The creature work. You I know? completely agree. I, I actually enjoyed the special effects. I did. The That first scene of the of frank's corpse coming through the floorboards mm. where the body is reconstituting itself that I thought was, was awesome really good yeah. yeah yeah so a plus on that um this movie originally had an x rating which i don't think would surprise anybody it, it was it had uh, some sex scenes uh you know not 
that graphic, but the violence and the kind of... Uh, the psychosexual aspect yeah, of it. Yeah, I mean, it was a little rapey, you know? Yes. Um, and, and also, e- even outside of being rapey, there's this... There's a sexual quality to the relationship between uh, Frank and Julia, the, our, our two bad characters, that permeates the entire film. So even when they're not having a sex scene, their scenes are still saturated with sex. Yes. And, and like, not straightforward sex either. It's like a very dominant, submissive, even a little sadomasochistic you know that, that kind of thing. I mean the whole film is very I it, it's, well yeah it's funny that that was the original title because I I in searching for a way to describe this in my head while watching it I'm like this is like a sadomasochist's sick like fantasy and, and that wasn't uh anything that you'd had in your mind before seeing it you didn't know that that was associated with this film no I didn't I mean oh, yeah. the 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 imagery of the pinhead character kind of suggests it but no i didn't i didn't yeah. expect it to be uh about sadomasochism so squarely and nor nor as sexual as it was right i mean that because that is sort of the the thing with this film that's its angle is that it's so it is consumed with this concept of pleasure and pain and that's evident from the opening line of the film, which is kind of, uh, I won't go so far as to say famous, but like it's the most prominent line I think that would be associated with it, which is, what's your pleasure? Yeah. You know, what's your pleasure, Mr. Cotton? Mm. You know, it's like, what is your pleasure? Uh, so this movie was shot, or at least partially shot, in Britain, and then for marketing purposes relocated to the United States so they had to dub redub a bunch of the characters to make them sound american really and yeah you kind of get that a lot of the lovers she brings back to the house have british accents mm. or uh, have british accents creep in at certain points so that that stood out to me this time and then ultimately this movie spawned nine sequels Wow. A lot of them straight to video, but it's a big franchise. And it's it's a heavily referenced film. We were talking earlier today about uh, Cabin in the Woods, the movie. Yes. And so, as you know, in that film, there's, like, all of the captured monster movies, many of them represented, many of them representing a bunch of different franchises. There is a uh, pinhead analog in the film. I don't know if you remember. He's holding a... So, uh, you this wasn't something that you brought up prior to watching the film but apart from hit pinhead i would say the thing most associated with this film is the box the, the box. puzzle box right. which um is called the let me see if i wrote it down the lament configuration hmm. and solving the puzzle box summons the cenobites the the monsters and in uh in cabin in the woods in the in these movies it's a cube in cabin in the woods there's sort of like a pinhead with like a saw through his head or something and he's holding a sphere a uh. spherical one and it's one of, you know it, it's one of the things they almost pick up to choose their fate you know so easily could have been a hellraiser situation <laughs> yeah. but so okay so let's talk about the actors a little bit i i'm like i said trying to be a little more structured and i'm going to be very uh, upfront about the fact I'm borrowing some uh, aspects of this structure from a podcast I loved very much called Yeah, It's That Bad. Uh, so don't yell at me if you notice any similarities because I'm acknowledging it right now. Um, so for the actors, 
I'll go through them and you let me know how you thought they did. Uh, Sean Chapman is Frank. Good performance. Yeah, I mean, creepy and also like... But with sex appeal. Yeah, with sex appeal and just the right kind, where it's like he's the bad boy. Yeah, he it's it's like a, a, a machismo. Yeah. Yeah, you can see why uh, our, uh, why Julia goes for him. Right, exactly. There's some, you know, they, they play that chemistry well. Yeah, yeah. so uh, we have Claire Higgins as Julia. What did you think of her? Uh, I thought she was surprisingly good. I mean, she... Uh, at, you know, at first she's she's kind of a subtle character, but then she just gets really good at the, like, kind of 80s demon murder-esque, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, she when she's coming into her own, like, kind of murdering people getting for Frank. Getting more used to it. Getting... getting more used to it. That transformation and that embrace of that dark side to do that for him, that was brilliantly acted. Yeah, uh, I, I would go so far as to say in some of her early scenes she's a little stiff. Yes. Um, but it, it does fit her character in that she's someone who, you know, is outwardly very frigid, but she has this repressed part of her, which is kind of why she's so drawn to Frank. Like, you know, it's his, his he has this dominant way with her that you would think she wouldn't like, but it just it speaks to something repressed inside her, and she's good at, like, playing that that desire you know that desire to let it all all that repressed shit come out right you know i, well, I think and, she does a good job and we we essentially learn that her whole reason for being that cold to her husband is that she's you know she really has her inner desires for frank yeah well speaking of her husband let's talk about andrew robinson as larry um good performance i mean the character is kind of like a okie doke yeah you know um i think he he plays it well but he's just a straight man yeah yeah um i mean i think he does a good job he does uh perform the duality of being frank at the end that's true and he does a pretty good job there i mean conveying that this is frank in disguise as his character right i will say i agree with you that um he, he doesn't really stand out as anything that special in this film but i think that's the role because this actor I recognized him at first and couldn't figure out where, and then when I looked it up, he is the actor who plays Garrick on Deep Space Nine. Okay. Did you ever watch Deep Space Nine? I didn't, but he did look familiar from somewhere. Yeah, well, Garrick is a Cardassian, uh, so he's under a lot of makeup. I so see. I think that was why I had some trouble quite placing him, although the voice helped a little bit. He has a bit of a distinctive voice. But... um. I will say Garrick has a... There is a strong argument to be made that Garrick is the greatest character in Star Trek. Interesting. He's complicated and ambiguous. Interesting. He's a great character. I don't know if he's my all-time favorite character. You know, I, I love Spock. I love Data. I love Picard. Cisco. On and on and on. But um, Garrick is a great, great character. And he, he acts well on that show. So... Mm. Uh, Props to you, Andrew Robinson. And then um, we have Ashley Lawrence's Christie. Uh, it's Kirsty, isn't oh, it? Oh, Kirsty. Yeah. Kirsty, such an 80s name. Yeah, it is. I thought she did a really good job. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I'm not disagreeing. Just uh, tell me why. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, she. It, it, as far as the writing goes, like the first scene we see her in, 
you have no clue what's going on. She's on the phone with her dad, and you have no clue what's happening on her end. And they don't reveal it, which is kind of weird. But um, then, you know, later in the film, I'm expecting kind of more more of an okey-doke type character from her. Like her dad. Like her dad. And she's not. I mean, we see her kind of like get drunk at this party. And with his encouragement, though, which with I thought his was encouragement. weird. And, and I, 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 in my mind, I'm like... It added to the like rapey tone of the film that they're like all at a at a dinner table together laughing and they laugh at this joke where this this kid that's hanging out there is like she's she she's like I feel like I need I'm gonna need to lie down or something if I drink another one and he's like so, so lie, lie down, down. Uh-huh. yeah and oh everyone's like laughing at this like blatant like well it is her dad it is her her dad's there. No, but the, the dad wasn't the one who said oh, that. Oh, really? It was the boyfriend character who oh, says that wow. to her. Okay. As he's trying to pour her too much alcohol. Oh, I, like, I didn't notice that. And okay. that's all good family fun, apparently, at <laughs> well, the, the table. Well, it's the 80s. I mean, really. But, you know, we see that from her. And then, of course, her character becomes more of a, a main one throughout uh, the, the film. But I thought she did a good job. She had good range in, as far as the emotional display of the character and uh, mm-hmm. you know I I, I I was surprised that, that uh, at the performance that she put in. Yeah also to speak just speaking to the character, I thought she was uh, she was uh, pleasantly clever for a final girl. You know, she figures out the significance of the puzzle box very quickly. yeah and she has the wherewithal to negotiate with the Cenobites right away where like you know, you would think someone might be a little too out of their head with fear to necessarily do that. And she tricks Frank at the end. Yeah. You know, she she loses it a little bit with, you know, her concern for her dad, which is natural, but generally speaking, keeps her head. Yeah, other is, than that one moment where she's, you know, just crying when she should be fleeing. But well, no, but, but she didn't. She was luring Frank. That's right. So yeah. that he could confess and the Cenobites would so, uh, turn on him. That's right. So, you know, wow. it's way to go, girl. And then... uh. Finally, we have Doug Bradley as Pinhead. Yeah, so... (laughs) He is barely in the movie. He's barely in the movie. It's crazy. And it's funny because, you know, here I am thinking this is going to be the main character. And he's, he's, he's kind of the leader of the Cenobites, but only because he speaks more than they do. Yes, I will say so. In this movie, he is not called Pinhead. He is credited as lead Cenobite. Ah. So he is their leader, but uh, the name Pinhead arose sort of apart from the film. It was a fan name. I see. That later came to be associated with him. That makes sense. Well, it is uh, it is descriptive. Uh, but yeah, and, and also, you know, he's barely in the movie, but he's very striking. Mm-hmm. And he's part of what everyone remembers about the film. Yes. Um, so it, it, he originated in a time where campy outlandish horror characters like freddy jason uh michael myers isn't that campy but he's very you know striking and recognizable memorable so yes. pinhead got lumped in with all that and so i haven't seen all of them but i believe that in this run of sequels his prominence grows and grows yes you know he becomes more important right that makes sense yeah but you know he's he's a good character I, I I think he's uh, frightening, certainly. Yeah, I kind of like the whole concept of the Cenobites as a clique. It's it's interesting to see the different. Uh, yeah, there there are a bunch of them. He's yeah. not the only one. Right, and they're each like a different facet of this like 
you know, torture ecstasy thing that they have going on. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of the designs of the other ones, too. I especially like the chattering Cenobite. I like that one a lot. The one with the teeth. And I like the female Cenobite. There's a thing with her that I like, which is that um, her throat is held open. Yeah. And she, I believe, is speaking out of that. Ah, uh, that makes sense. Uh, I think. Yeah. I, mean, it's, I think that's pretty cool. It's like this gross gape, but it's also very vaginal. It's extremely vaginal. Yeah. Yeah, which, you know, all the way back to that psychosexual sadomasochistic shit that they're into. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of incredible. This movie came out of England in the 80s, which you would think wouldn't be such a sexually intense place, but maybe you maybe you would think that, just maybe. given that, like, you know... In a, in a culture such as theirs, they'd get into some weird shit. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there, that was kind of an era with, like, punk, you True. know, and, like, you know, sadomasochism. There could have been a good culture around that. From... And what do I really know about the Brits, anyway? I got no idea what they get up, get up to over there. Yeah, that's right. They're, they're, they're a mysterious uh, bunch, them. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's talk about the plot. And I think the, one of the first things we should do as our uh, plot breakdown is touch on some of your predictions okay all right so you predicted that uh someone would raise some hell that's i mean how do we evaluate that what, what do you think well hell is raised but in a much more uh down-to-earth way like hell on earth does not occur that is true there's no fires there's no i mean demons sort of well but... okay i mean the bringing on of demons i think the summoning of the cenobites counts as sure as bringing demons forth right yeah but they're also not demons like they're not just torturing you they're a little bit more complicated than that sure yeah <laughs> <laughs> still what they uh what they deem to be fun is a little uh little intense yeah not my definition yeah it's not my cup of tea either uh, you predicted that there would be a portal of sorts. Well, so the box was uh, the very much like a portal. Yeah, or it's at least uh, the key. Yeah. Yeah, the lament configuration. Cool name. Yeah, it is. Cool name, yeah. And um, you thought that there would be a curse of some kind that creates the portal and that normal people would be killed. Well, I think I got the normal people would be killed thing pretty Yes, but, you know, they weren't necessarily killed the way you would expect. Most of the people who die in this movie are murdered in a serial killer fashion. Yes. By Julia. Right. Well, Julia and Frank. Yeah. So, you know, the, there's something, again, a little bit more down-to-earth about a lot of the deaths. Although, many of them are very gross. There yeah, that. that's true. I mean, it, they're demonic, so there's, you know, we, mm. we kind of have a demon thing going on the whole time. Right, right. And, you know, he's sucking their skin off, or he's he's using their blood to generate his skin. Yeah, certainly. yeah. He's he's pretty much like, uh, what, what was it that, uh, he, he's uh, drinking dudes like a fountain soda, is, is the, <laughs> <laughs> the phrase that I came up with to describe. Ew. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, and so, um... We've got Pinhead. You predicted that he'd be some kind of supernatural character, correct? You predicted that there would be other monsters, also correct. And uh, I, I want to point out, there's that uh, monster in the wall. Yes. The, the, like, baby scorpion. Yes. Really intense monster. Yeah, that thing's weird. And disgusting. Yeah. And scary. 
And uh, you were you were mentioning I, I was also thinking of that scene from Pan's Labyrinth with the uh... right. So during the movie, I thought the there's a scene where uh, Kirsty opens the lament configuration for the first time. She goes through the wall of her hospital room and finds the, the horrible monster in there that flees, and the wall closes behind her, but you can still hear the the creature on the other side pounding, yeah. and it reminded me of the scene in Pan's Labyrinth where uh, the pale man attacks, and she has to use the chalk to open the door. And, and she climbs out, and right. he's still... You, you can, can still kind of hear him. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it reminded me a lot of that. There's also, I thought, um, there was some kind of, you know, sort of ring shit going on on the TV. Mm. You know, like, just all these flickering images, like, flowers opening, and, yeah. you know, this weird stuff, that weird stuff, you know, that kind of thing. Yep. Yeah, I mean, if talking about just the visuals, too, there were a couple of um, parts towards the, just the use of, like, insects. I liked a lot. There were a mm. couple of gross scenes with just like uh, maggots, maggots or yeah. I mean uh, the rats. I loved it. I mean, okay. There was one part at which I'm like, is that a real rat with a nail through it right there? Is this some animal cruelty happening? And I would hope not. I I I, I imagine it was all probably special effects. I mean, there was that one part where uh, Frank like has the the rat at the bedside and he just kind of scalps it. Yep. And you're like, why? I don't know, man. Why did he do that? So gross why and unnecessary. <laughs> well, he's also he's like watching the two of them fuck. And how does Larry not notice that behind him Frank is like looming? Like I get nervous when people are looking my way from across the room. Can you imagine if someone was standing over you like Never that? Never mind cutting the back of a rat off, like, <laughs> over your back while you're oh, having sex. God. Like, it's disgusting. <laughs> you're not going to notice that? Come on. Yeah. And so I, I will toss out, at many points in watching this movie, you and I uh, looked at each other and said, this movie is gross. And... It, it is. It is really gross. And I think that differentiates it from some of the other 80s uh, horror movies. A lot of those ones are also gross. And in some ways, you know, some of those Freddy movies especially are more creative in the kills. But there's something about this one that's kind of so viscerally disgusting. Like, I think it's the wetness. Yeah. And we'll we'll talk about that more, but like, yeah, there's something, you know, the way the hooks look going into the skin, the way it like pulls on them, like it's mm -hmm. very uh, skin crawly. Yeah, and I mean, uh, talking about like creativity in the in the in the deaths and the murder and the violence, like, you know, comparing it to the Nightmare on Elm Street, I, I have to say, I, I I I don't think my assessment was correct. It's not like a second string. Uh, kind of version of of that film or that story at all I mean, mm. and and the violence is it may not be it may not be as creative at the same time it's not as like wacky and like gimmicky in terms of the the violence it's more kind of like straightforward and psychological and yeah most of the murders that happen are just kind of this just murders just murders and uh you know other than you know some of the violent stuff that happens with the hooks and you know uh the the monsters and demons chasing our our characters and 
yeah. you know, the demons sustaining themselves off of the blood and all of that. Right. I mean, it, th- there is a gimmick to it, but it's not, how would I put it? It's not as gimmicky a gimmick. Like Nightmare right. on Elm Street is very much about the, the gimmick where it's like he gets you in your dreams. Right. And the, each dream has its own kind of gimmick to it. Right. And each death has like an idea behind it. Right. But uh, this one, you know, there's th- this sadomasochistic psychosexual aspect to it. But beyond that, it's kind of anything goes. Like, you know, someone can die just a regular, normal, getting hit with a hammer kind of way. You know, or, you know, you can get torn apart by demons. Right. Yeah. Um, So, all right, getting into a few of the details. So we got the beginning. Frank gets the puzzle box, the lament configuration. What's your pleasure? He opens it. He gets torn apart. Pretty good. Then we get uh, our, our main couple moving in, and what always stood out to me in the beginning was, one, the body coming out of the floor. Yes. You know, I think that's a very memorable, cool scene, and the special effects are very good for it. But two, what I, I just keep remembering is um, his the way he gets the cut on his hand, when his hand goes on that nail and he gets the first cut that and generates the blood. The blood just, like, is so much, right? It's, it's like, splashing, gushing. Yeah, but also, it, like... The way it drag, you know, this nail, like, the skin catches on the nail and it yeah. drags and rips. It, it's very, it really caught me off guard. It's intense. Yeah. yeah. It, especially for something that's not, like, it's not even a murder. It's just, like, a guy getting a pretty normal cut. Yeah. You know? It's just stuff that always stuck out to me. And Did you notice the, the beating heart of the house? There... Well, no, I think that's the beating heart of Frank. Ah, uh, well, yes, that's right. It is before he comes up into... Yeah, like, that's like the first thing that the blood gets into and starts regenerating him. Right. I, I just found that because that was one of the first, um, you know, after we've gotten the scenes in the house with them just kind of moving in. Yeah, and establishing it's, everybody. It's the normal people phase, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, then we start to notice that there's something up in this attic space where we know some, this this, you know, crazy thing has happened to this character. Yeah. And then we see the the beating heart. I mean, I think you mentioned one of the t- uh, tentative titles was something along those oh, lines. Oh, the, the uh, story it's based on is called The Hellbound Heart. The Hellbound Heart. Okay, yeah. that's interesting. Okay, but they probably you, you didn't think, refer to that. You think of that. the Telltale Heart. That, yeah, exactly. That, that scene with the animated heart under the floorboards think mm-hmm. it, it it recalls the telltale it, yeah. heart quite a bit and you would think it deliberately calls back to it the same way the title kind of does too. yeah yeah um what i also found striking you know in these early scenes is we get the establishing of our uh relationship between julie and frank which you know like we talked about is surprisingly well portrayed like or, or at least it's it's compelling yeah you know and it's not something you see a lot you know, uh, right. that, that kind of a relationship, I don't think. Um, but this is also where I started noticing some of the things about the movie that are a bit dated. And specifically, I would say it's the smoking. Mm, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of smoking. Well, not only that, but smoking indoors. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, uh, early on, uh, Julia puts out a cigarette on, on the, floor the floor in the house. In the house, yeah. So it, it, I, I don't want to bring this up every time I watch a movie from the 80s or before, but in uh, an earlier 
discussion about Ghostbusters, Aaron and I discussed uh, how everyone in Ghostbusters is smoking and how that's weird and different. But what no one did in Ghostbusters was put a cigarette out on the floor inside a building. Right, and you know, it's it's funny because watching it now, I'm like half expecting uh, uh, the the husband character to take offense mm-hmm. to that. He didn't, and I'm nope. wondering like it's nothing. It's yeah. It's I guess it's just nothing, right? It's normal. Hey, it's hardwood floors. Who gives a shit, right? Yeah, I guess so. Wow. <laughs> Maybe it's an English thing. Uh, it in England. I, it could be that too. That could be part of it. I don't know. But um, and also, you know, at that dinner party, the boyfriend character is doing that like party trick. He's smoking during the dinner party. Yeah, he puts the cigarette in his mouth and then back out again, and it's still smoking. Yeah, and I guess it's a cool trick, but it's also kind of like you just put a lit cigarette inside your mouth. Yeah, right. Disgusting. He's kind of gross. Yeah, and uh, I guess also part and parcel with that was your observation that the dad was cool with just. Uh, getting his daughter all liquored up right in front of him right yeah yeah again maybe an english thing could be although the dad's american no matter what right they're they're the american half are they i don't know well i mean ultimately the movie does take place in america i'm just trying speculating on how it was when they were shooting it thinking it was in england you know i see so you know whatever not a big deal um one small thing i noticed uh in Frank's early scenes, especially, he keeps repeating, don't look at me. Yeah. And it kept bringing me back to this episode of The Simpsons where Marge discovers that her dad is a steward or a, a stewardess in yeah. her mind. And he just, his reaction when she comes in the plane, he's like, don't look at me. <laughs> don't look at me. <laughs> It's just like I kept thinking of that every time Frank said it during the film. <laughs> don't look at me. Do you me. think that was a reference to this? I don't think Probably so. Probably not. But maybe who knows? You know, it was it just made me laugh anyway. Um, one thing I'd forgotten in this film was the weird homeless guy. Yeah. Who keeps showing up and stalking Kirsty? Kirsty. Kirsty, and apparently uh, intimidating her by eating uh, live locusts in her pet shop. Yeah, which uh, he comes. She works in a pet shop, which uh, a pet shop which has a rather large monkey. Yeah, apparently for just like a corner store That's pet like shop, a zoo level monkey. Yeah, dude. It like she's selling like parakeets and boa constrictors, and then there's a full on fucking monkey there. <laughs> freaking out in the middle of this tiny little like closet sized store it was pretty incredible but what i noticed was this homeless guy comes in and he reaches in and pulls out all these i'm assuming they're like crickets for feeding like you know the lizards or whatever and he pulls all the bugs out in his hand and she goes put those back and i'm like put them back like they're out like you can't just you know what are you gonna do and then he eats them yeah and i forgot all about it because i was like gross he's eating live bugs (laughs) <laughs> but yeah so i'd forgotten all about him um and in the end he turns out to be kind of like the the demonic watcher of the box yeah which is so weird well you know it's got to get back to its starting point somehow i suppose yeah but i, I feel like he's unnecessary like it would have been if the movie so at the end of the movie and i guess we're jumping ahead but whatever um uh kirstie after she's won throws the box into a fire and you immediately were like, that thing's not going to burn. And I mean, obviously. Yeah. 
Uh, and so the homeless guy comes up, he reaches in, he picks up the box, he burns and then turns into this like winged dragon skeleton demon and flies off and then the box is back in was it Marrakesh? It's in a it's in a bazaar somewhere. Yeah, it's back to, to the where we saw it at the very beginning. Right, but if, if she had like thrown it in the fire and it starts burning and then they just walk away and it's like close up on the box and then like zoom in on the box and then zoom out and it's like we're back in Marrakesh and somehow some way completely unexplained it's back there at the starting point and the guy's just like what's your pleasure? I would have believe I would have been fine with it. Yeah, it's a magic box. I would have been. You didn't need the guy. I mean, I guess it's cool as an image. Right. But um, not it, really necessary. It seemed like an excuse for more cool monster, monster stuff, like puppetry. Yeah. yeah, which I honestly appreciated. Mm. I liked that stuff. Oh, all right. Well, fair enough then. Um, let's see. So, um, did you uh, notice anything? As long as we're going through this uh, this movie bit by bit, anything that stood out to you? Uh, in anything that stood out. Uh, other than the things that I just mentioned. Oh, uh, talking about the 80s, that boyfriend character, does he or does he not have a mullet? It's, it's ambiguous, right? So he's got this kind of like, he's got extra hair back there that, that goes down to his neck zone, but it's not like... It's way longer on top than on the sides. Exactly. Yeah. So... Is that a mullet? I would say it's not technically a mullet. Mm-hmm. You just got extra hair back on the neck. Right. All right. So anyway, when we were leaving off talking about the plot, so we get Julia starting to murder people for Frank, and she brings home a string of lovers. I, I kept wondering, like, is it realistic that she'd be getting away with it? I guess it's not taking that long, right? Right. You know, so this is probably unfolding over the course of, like, what, a couple of weeks? Yeah, and it's, like, during the workday, you know, this is this is something that could take place. Um, over a few days? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I have to say I was struck by the, the, the adult themes. You know, not only was there this sadomasochist sexual kind of uh, angle. angle throughout the whole thing, but, you know, we explored adultery a lot. Mm. There was, you know... Oh, yeah, that's what... Sorry to interrupt, but um, when Julia first has sex with Frank, they bang on the wedding dress, which I thought was a funny touch. Yeah, I mean, isn't it like the wedding day or like the eve? The night before. The night before. He seduces the wife on the night before. And I mean, they spend a lot of time in the movie, like, playing up the contrast between, like, hunky bad boy frank and milk toast loser larry yes you know and you, you understand why julia might have been uh, attracted to the bad boy brother even on even on the night before the wedding yeah but you know then then her demeanor after that she's harboring this secret and it's you know one thing that struck me is like the literal skeleton in the closet you know, she has she has an actual skeleton in the closet. Yeah. And and you know, that that's played to you know, that that uh imagery and that metaphor made literal in the like most ex yeah, you know, explorative yeah, way. Well, I kept thinking about how, you know, once he is broken through with her and kind of has her under his spell, uh she says several times, uh, I'll do anything. Yes. And I kept thinking how she probably feels like, you know, what really she's saying is, uh, I'll deep throat 
your dick or, you know, we can do anal once a week or something like that. But it turns out, no, I'd like you to murder guys for me. Yes. That's where that ultimately winds up going. After I've um, uh, sacrificed myself to this pain, pleasure, box, lament configuration. configuration. Yeah. So that, you know, I can get my flesh back. Yeah, well, you know, it's all part of the appeal. It's the same as, it's just a more extreme version of banging on the wedding dress. It just adds to it. Yes, that's right. It's an extension of their pre-existing relationship. It really is. So I mean, know. you know, I, 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 I see it. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's interesting. It is. Yeah. Okay, and so she murders all the guys. Kirsty figures it out because she's sharp. And, uh, you know, then we get to the end and she tricks everyone. The boyfriend wound up being much less of a character than I think he's yeah. built up to be. He doesn't really do anything. I mean, his most significant thing were the the somewhat racy joke and the and the party trick with the cigarette. I mean, he, he and does... he kisses her in that really gross place. Oh yeah, not uh, not on her body, but uh, they're out body. like in a in, in like a subway station or yeah. something, and like fitting with a lot of the atmosphere of this film being like really grimy and gritty. Uh, it's sort of a disgusting, gross kind of subway area where they're making out. Yeah, I did notice that. Yeah, that their first kiss is in this like horrible place. <laughs> um, but um, uh, he does also save her or help save her from uh the monster at the end he bangs it in the face with a bottle so mm -hmm. but he, he's really not a major character no he's not um another thing that was interesting we didn't even talk about the religious uh tones i mean like there are a lot of moments where there are these like jesus uh statues throughout the house uh you know yeah we we see that and then at the end when frank's being torn up again he has that moment where he's smiling at Kirsty with the hooks in him, and his last line is, Jesus wept. Yeah. Which is odd. Yeah, striking, though. Yeah. Stands out. Um, I mean, do you, what, what do you see there? Do you... I mean, um, you know, I think it's, I think it's referencing the... Uh, the suffering uh, on the cross. The suffering on the cross, and... You what know, is it saying that... about it, do you think? Uh, I mean, I think it's... You know, think about uh, uh, the passion of the Christ and the and the uh, the torture before the the putting a him on the cross. A very similar film in a lot of ways. Oddly enough, yes. <laughs> Do you suppose Mel Gibson had this film in mind? I would bet anything that M Mel Gibson has seen this film and enjoys it. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully one day we can ask him. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I, I can see what you're saying. Um, I, I, I didn't feel like it was very strong. It aspect. wasn't prominent, but it was there in in bits throughout. You know, yeah. there was, we, we got the sense of the room. Like, you know, when they return to this house, Julia, she first comes into this room. Actually, she's there with Larry. And it's clear that there's all this, like, Jesus stuff in the room and this is immediately before they're in separate rooms and she finds the the photographs with frank kind of getting kinky with a number of women yeah uh i mean also you know during the cat and mouse game with uh kirsty at the end the jesus like it's not even a statue it's more like a jesus Mariushka doll falls out of the 
closet. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, okay. And obviously uh, Frank's torments, especially at the end, are reflective. I mean, the position he's held into is Right, when he says that line. A crucifixion pose. Yes. Yeah, so, okay, cool, cool. Uh, anything else? Let's see. I mean, those are my main uh, observations. I don't know if I'd have anything else to add. Okay, well, let's um, turn a little bit to how this movie was received. Uh, we'll start with what the professional critics thought. Uh, all right, so on the plus side, and these are all just pulled from Wikipedia, but um, on the plus side, Time Out London had this to say about the film. It creates such an atmosphere of dread that the astonishing set pieces simply detonate in a chain reaction of cumulative intensity. That is a very intensely written quote. Um, and then also they said it is a serious, intelligent, and disturbing horror film. Okay. And then on the negative side, the New York Times said uh, Barker cast, quote, singularly uninteresting actors. Well, it sounds like we kind of disagree with that. Although, yeah, I would say I kind of disagree. Yeah, I mean, again, Larry's character is not that interesting, but I don't want to blame that on the actor. Julia has a has a kind of uninteresting air about her because of the kind of coldness of the character throughout most of the film. But it's hiding something. But it's hiding something, and that something is revealed to us throughout the film, and and, and I find it compelling. Hmm. So, okay. Uh, the New York Times also said the special effects aren't bad, only damp. <laughs> very true. Yes. Very true. This is a very wet. Yeah wet movie yes, a lot of is. goo lot of and goo, goop goop gore yeah. blood viscera Ugh. Yeah. Uh, and then roger ebert was not a fan of this movie at all he called it as dreary a piece of goods as has masqueraded as horror in many a long cold night this is one of those movies you sit through with mounting dread as the fear grows inside you that it will indeed turn out to be feature length. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah, it really is. And then uh, this is a movie without wit, style, or reason, and the true horror is that actors were made to portray and technicians to realize its bankruptcy of imagination. Oh, that's harsh. Wow, I don't really agree with that. But I must say, I am glad that review exists. <laughs> it's funny. I mean, I uh, I don't... Th I, I would thoroughly disagree with the bankruptcy of imagination piece. I mean, this is quite the creative work, if you ask me. The, mm. um, you know, the vision came to life, and, and, and I found it compelling. It, it wasn't bad. But the, uh, the piece about uh, uh, that, it, you know, it lacked wit... Um, it wasn't designed to be really witty. It's it wasn't aiming for it's that. It's a heavy movie. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I I can see a little bit what he's saying when he calls it dreary, certainly. It's certainly dreary. I mean, the 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 dread, the sense of dread. Mhm. Mm that's true. That's like Yeah, it's but fine. he's saying that he dreads the he idea dreads... that this might be a longer film I than mean, he's the uh, Ebert, expected. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's what he meant. But, you know, there there is an atmosphere to the film. Yes. There's something unsettling about it. Um, all right, well, let's start getting into your reactions, Drew. Um, number one, normally I ask if the hype of a movie impacted your impression of it, but it doesn't seem like you came in with very much hype. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, I, I uh, 
any impression that I had of the film and its and its fan following did not give me a lead on how it would be okay. when I saw it. That's fair. Um, do you think, though, it would have changed your thoughts on the film if you'd seen it at an early age, like if you'd seen it as a kid? Yes. I will say, uh, so I didn't really find this to be a frightening film. It's uh, unsettling. And it makes an impression, but it's not scary. However, I was just imagining, especially during scenes like when the Cenobites are there, any of the gore scenes, really, where uh, people are getting ripped apart, or um, when that horrible, like, baby scorpion monster is chasing someone. Um, I kept thinking to myself, I can envision being 11 at a sleepover and watching this movie and being absolutely fucking terrified. Yes. You know? Yeah, I, I I agree. I mean, I would definitely have, I I would have found this film to be truly haunting. Yeah, seeing it, it as I would have remembered person. it forever. Yeah, 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 totally. All right. Well, so ultimately, Drew, what did you think of the film? I I was pleasantly surprised. Uh, you know, I went in thinking it would be this campy, kind of trashy, kind of silly '80s thing that I'd be laughing through most of the time. Uh, Not a lot of laughs. No, there were some laughs. There were some laughs, and some of them were a campy kind of like, oh, look at that 80s kind of moment. But for the most part, like, I felt, I think I was mostly feeling the way that the film wanted me to. Yeah. You know, it's funny in thinking of that, too, is that I see a little bit of what Roger Ebert is saying is that not to say that the other slasher movie sequels are better because they're not. A lot of them are bad, but there is a kind of levity to them that this movie didn't have. Like, this movie's intense. Yeah. It's not, it's, it's good in its way, not necessarily very fun, though. You know, you wouldn't just throw this one on. No. Yeah. It's it's heavy. And yes. I wasn't expecting that. I was expecting it to have that levity. Yeah. Be a little bit more disposable, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And so, all right. Yeah. Well, I think I agree with you. You know, I'd seen it once before. I didn't remember it as well as I thought I had. Uh, but, you know, it makes a strong impression. And it's not the greatest film I've ever seen, not even close, but... You know, for what it is, I think it does a good job. Yeah. I have to say the animation was wonderful. Yes. Yeah. The, and the the design of all of the monsters, the puppetry. I wrote down to uh, the name of the makeup artist, um, Bob Keen. Did a mm-hmm. very good job. You know, that I mean, that pinhead look became iconic. Yes, it know? did. And it's not even the most interesting or creative design, really. Some of those other Cenobites are really interesting. I will, uh, the one Cenobite we haven't mentioned... Besides the uh, the lady Cenobite and the chattering Cenobite, there's, uh, what do they call him, the Butterball Cenobite? Yeah, he's he's kind of this, like, kind of fat, lip-licking, yeah, like, uh, glasses-wearing, like, shades-wearing kind of weirdo. Yeah, you weren't familiar with the character, but I felt he looks a lot like the uh, physical body of the Shadow King. And also, maybe a little bit, another British character design. He looks kind of like a Suntaran. Do you, you ever see the, do you ever watch Doctor Who? Yes. The Suntarans are an alien race he fights. Do you know the ones I'm talking yes, about? Yes, I do. Yeah. yeah, he does He does look like one of those. Yeah. So, uh, you know, maybe that's just a look that scares British people. <laughs> yeah, just like the fat kind of like weird. Hairless. The chunky. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, then I think that brings us to our final question, Drew. Better late or never? 
Oh, better late for sure. Mm. Yes, I enjoyed it. And as we said, actually, I'm happier that I saw it now than as had I seen it as a kid. It yeah. might have fucked you up as a kid. Possibly. <laughs> yeah. Who knows what weird kinky shit you'd be into now if you'd seen it at 11. (laughs) Yeah. Well, cool. Well, I think that uh, with that, we come to the end of the show. Drew, it was a pleasure having you. My pleasure being here. And I hope to get you again sometime. Yes. And uh, for those of you listening, thank you very much. Uh, Email me. I'll put in a thing once I have an email address. And we'll catch you next time. Bye. Kings, we're raising hell like a class when the lunch bell rings. The king will be praised, and I will be raised. This is the stuff that's trying to phase him, but he won't be phased. So what's your name? DMC, the king is me. Your highness or his majesty.